Welcome back to DL Uncut. Our next guest is a former FBI assistant director and national security analyst for NBC News. He's the author of the new book, The FBI Way. Please welcome to the show, Frank Figliuzzi. It is a, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yes. It's, it's nice. I'm glad, to, I'm, I'm glad we could do it. I'm, it. I'm really glad we could do it. It's nice to be in front of you instead of in the back of a car or something, but it's, it's very <laughs> nice to be here. Um, interesting that we'd have you on because Christopher Ray, who's the director of the FBI now, he was being um, he was being uh, he, he was on with the Senate and a senator asked him, did he believe I think it was a senator from Louisiana. He mm-hmm. asked him, did he believe that there was systemic uh, bias or racism in the FBI? And he said no. And is that is that an accurate? Do you think that that's true? So, I look, I think what here's what gets in the way of people trying to really deal with this question honestly. And it's it's this. And you, I, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but you get a bunch of really good people who sign up to defend the nation. They pass top secret background clearances. They get polygraphed every five years, blah, blah, blah. They are the cream of the crop in terms of really representing the defense of America. And then you ask the director, right? You know, as, as William Barr was asked, but not right. so much. <laughs> right. But, right. You know, is there is there systemic racism? Barr was asked in, in police writ large, and now apparently today Ray was asked about the Bureau. Here, here's the bottom line. And this gets to a much larger question. Of of course there's systemic racism right. in our society. Right. In our in our society. Right. So to think that somehow even the FBI, as right. great as all those men and women are, um, to think that they're somehow a monolith of difference, that they're they're somehow magically different, I think is is misleading. And here's why this is an even more important question than than people may realize. It's because until we deal with this issue in law enforcement, even at my agency, which I love and dedicated 25 years to, we're never really going to get our minds around what the hell happened on January 6th. Right. Because because if you know. <laughs> We have a collective inability, it seems, to view ourselves as a threat. When people look like us, um, we we tend to like not see what's right in front of us. So what I've been calling January 6th is not an intelligence failure, but rather a failure to act upon available intelligence. And the real question that really hasn't been asked to, to Chris Ray yet, or anybody in any of these Senate hearings, is, okay, look. We all saw this. We were all sitting at home in our recliners for at least two to three weeks before January 6th, seeing the planning, seeing it play out. Why aren't you able to see what everybody else saw? And I'm sorry to go off on a tangent. No, no, no. This- you Well, you don't mess up half the interview because yeah. you asked all the questions. <laughs> but forget it. You're the FBI. You, get. you know what's interesting about what you just said? Um, and then he was also asked, uh, Christopher Ray was also asked another uh he, he made the point of talking about how they, they got a lot of chatter, but they, it was harder to recognize. Then he made the point that they were equal opportunity. But if that were true, if we treated everybody like we did, say, a, a, a Black Lives Matter, um, they would have never been surprised. They would have never they wouldn't have been overwhelmed because they they they'd have met them with overwhelming force. That's the thing they try to overwhelm, overwhelm you for. So it's I think that some of the things it's not billed as advertised and it's insulting. To sit back and watch an organization that did what they did to Martin Luther King and, and, and the Black Panthers and, you know, Malcolm X and then say, no, we don't. Because then the question would be, if we don't have systemic racism, when did it stop? <laughs> what day were all those people rooted out and all those training mechanisms that were in place taken out? And what day did it become something different than it has historically been? I, I missed I missed that memo. Um, <laughs> right. look, I, 
look, we still have, and I, I, some of my old veteran colleagues are going to be really upset with what I'm about to say, but that building on the corner of 10th and Pennsylvania Avenue across the street from the Department of Justice in Washington is still named the J. Edgar Hoover right. FBI. Right. Now, now I'm going to I'm going to say this, but then I'm going to you know stand by. Um, Hoover brought the United States into modern law enforcement in terms of fingerprinting laboratory, the famous FBI laboratory. You know, the concept of right. fingerprints being unique and and eventually leading to DNA. I mean, he started all of that. The right. indexing. Okay, it's great. He brought us into modern law enforcement. We need to acknowledge that. Every everybody's got issues, but his issues were huge from a law enforcement right. perspective. Right. Right. Because he he then. He, he then went and exploited um, ideology differences for his own benefit. So I don't have to tell you the Black Panthers, uh, Martin Luther King, um, horrible part of the FBI's history. And unless the FBI acknowledges that as an as a as an institution, they can't sit there and go, nope, nope, we don't have. No, wait, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because. The Panthers don't exist, but the Klan still does. So that tells you a lot about how how they view things. You, you your book, The FBI Way, is very interesting to me because I remember we were growing up. We used to watch shows with G Men, and then with these earnest uh, these. You know, I remember watching the movie The Untouchables, and they were all these earnest, you know, unassailable, uh, chaste men. Um, um, who just you know they were uncorruptible, they were unflappable. Um, and I think, to your point earlier, that's just not, uh, you know, where we live in, in general, the, 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 the state of humanity anyway. But what do you see, uh, you know, from a very informed perspective? What is, what is the FBI way? Yeah. I, I, here's why I wrote the book. Uh, I couldn't stand anymore what I call the bureau bashing of the last four years. Right. Some of it, some of it let me be honest, some of it very um, well-deserved, but most of it, most of it, absolutely not. I could not take another day of Donald Trump or his cohorts besmirching the men and women. If you want to attack the senior executives, if you want to talk about Comey, and I do in my book, and Pete Strzok and Andy McCabe, I, we'll talk about it. But the bottom line is, I know from 25 years that the men and women who come to work every day in the FBI just simply trying to do the right thing um, is what the FBI is about. So I wanted to, to counter the Trump bureau bashing by saying this. Here's the book in a nutshell, though I still want everybody to buy it. After, <laughs> yeah, for us, for us as a how-to guy, so we're going to buy it. There you go. There you go. It's a, good, it, it's a, quick, it's a quick, good read. Tutorial, yeah. Right. Great war stories. But here's the message of the book. The FBI operates in an extremely high degree of excellence under extreme stress, sometimes life and death stress sure. every day in some field office sure. in, in America. They do it when the stakes are the highest, and they do it by preserving what matters most inside the organization. They do it in what's called values-based leadership, the concept that you really don't have truly successful excellence, performance, and leadership unless you stand for something and enforce an internal code. And the bottom line is, the book says you don't have to spend 25 years inside the FBI. I've condensed it to something called the seven C's, and you can glean leadership lessons and life lessons from that. It doesn't say, the book The, the book does not say the FBI is perfect, far from it, but it says, it get, it's a counter to what Trump's been saying, it gets it right most of the time. And if you want to learn how to protect values under stress, take a look at how they do it. And you might 
you might come but away how, with but how did they because because honestly uh when we talk about values under stress um i have i'm reticent to accept anybody who was appointed by the previous administration because they have been malleable at best they have been complicit at worst like uh Barr ran uh the uh the uh, the Justice Department. Do you think that he was an example of the 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 tenants that you just discussed? I don't think so. So they can, and and I think Christopher Ray for, for me is the same thing. I think he seems earnest, but he had a problem answering questions directly, which seemed more like a political dodge than it did uh, getting to the point. You got the job already, and and the president, is, you have his confidence, so you can keep the job. But the yeah. fact that what, what what has happened to I think this democracy is that. We just saw how easy and how uh, how, how fragile it uh, it is when when somebody in in the highest positions puts people who are unscrupulous inscru- uh, in the uh, in these positions, where democracy really came within minutes or seconds or hours, depending on whose story you believe, of not existing anymore. Yeah, our, you're right. Our, we've learned like, once again that our, we're in a fragile fragile experiment. Essentially, essentially, our democracy can be lost in, in frighteningly fast amount of time. But I do not put A.G. Barr in the same bucket, um, anywhere near the same bucket as Chris Ray. But and they were so going I, the same, that, that's, I, I have to push back a little bit. Even that they're not going the same bucket, they're going to be in the same photo book. They're going to be in the same yearbook picture. They're going to they're <laughs> still like it. So, well, okay. <laughs> so let me, let's, let's, let's talk about this because it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. The, what we have to balance here is the incredibly crucial need for the FBI to remain neutral, objective, and non-political right and it is increasingly hard to do it and unfortunately jim comey did some things like hey no reasonable prosecutor would ever prosecute hillary clinton for the emails that big press conference that in a heartbeat politicized the fbi that is death to the fbi brand it's death to the fbi mission so now we have to look at the next guy and whether or not we should be getting rid of FBI directors every time we change a president. And what many Americans don't know is that the FBI director deliberately is handed a 10-year term right. because right. he's supposed to straddle the administrations. He's supposed to not be political and serve at the whim of a, of a politician. So my concern was, and I, I came out and said this, Look, I, I'm not going to go either way on, on, uh, on Ray. I, I, have, I happen to think he's walked a very close tightrope in the past uh, few years. And I'll talk about the need to survive as FBI director and get the job done. But I'm, it's more important to me institutionally that we not flip out FBI directors every time there's a new president or a new president doesn't like the guy. And so you have to look at a man's actions, a woman's actions. What are his actions? He has repeatedly testified on the Hill much to the much to the chagrin of of President Trump back then, that it's domestic terrorism that's the number one threat, and even more, the subset of that is white supremacy. He said it again today. I thought he, I thought he said it, but I also thought it was uh, certainly a lot a more a more nuanced than the direct answer you just gave. And also, here's the thing, I think that uh, there were some senators that I got the impression were were at, t- to me if every aspect of our uh, of our uh, uh, country. An apparatus has been corrupted to some degree. Uh, I don't know what degree, but you had police officers, people from the military, uh, people from the intelligence. Like there were all people who are involved in what happened in, 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 in uh, I think, elected officials. Um, I got the impression, specifically, Josh Hawley sounded like he was trying to find out what 
to what extent the FBI was investigating and what tools they were using to get information they needed. And to me, I don't think it's a legitimate investigation unless we're talking about some of the people uh, who who led tours of of, of, of the Capitol during the six, who had uh, connections to these people. So I think it's not fair. It's not a real uh, investigation till we till we see some of them in trouble. A hundred percent. What we what we what we're witnessing in these Senate hearings, and boy, this is why we need an independent commission like we had after 9/11, if we can ever put one together. Because indeed. Who's asking the questions? Well, half of them are victims of all of them could be potentially victims of what ha- almost happened on January 6th. And then some of them are suspects. In, yes. in, that may have been, and where have you ever heard this happening before? Even the trial, the Senate trial for the second Trump impeachment. Who are the jurors? Right. In that trial? Right. Senators who may have aided and abetted the insurrection. So, yeah, this is window dressing, my friends. It's it's not going to happen until we have an independent commission. And you're right. I became frustrated today when a couple of senators asked some really solid questions, senators I don't really agree with, who asked solid questions about, hey, are you collecting cell phone right. metadata? Right, banging, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from everybody that was on the Capitol grounds. And and by the way, yeah, of course they are. Of course they are. And so, you know, and somehow Ray seemed to not under, not remember that or know that or want to talk about it because it's a sensitive thing. And and by the way, at the nest insurrection, we don't want people leaving their phones at home. <laughs> right. But but and, and I think I, I think we've set the sta- we've set the stage for there potentially to be another one. Um depending on who you asked, this was either an insurrection or or a peaceful protest where a couple of people went crazy. Depending on even though shitting on the floor I think is a bit far for any yeah. <laughs> it's not peaceful but but I think because we're populated with so many people to your point we need to have these institutions that really are uh beholden to no one. Um, but see, but, that's what I want to know. How do we regain confidence in this organization? When we see what we saw today, when we've seen what we've seen over the past four years, how do we as the American people re- get that confidence back in the FBI? But I would assert that the answer is not to change out the FBI director. I agree. Because I agree. because even if you don't care for everything he said, we we will be politicizing it even more. And we cannot have we already have an attorney general that keeps rotating and and that's the way it works but we can't do that for the premier law enforcement intelligence agency in the country lest it become highly politicized so i'm I'm hanging hanging in there hey hey, frank i got she she asked the question how do we be i'd like to know and and i think for some segments of our population that is the but for others for our uh for, for 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 black and brown people how do we establish a level of trust because if you asked um, by and large the American population and, and depending on what 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 color they are they'd have a different perception of what the FBI has and has been so m- m- to, not not to rephrase our question but how do how do some communities begin to establish a level of trust with the yeah. FBI yeah I, I think not only is this a real-time question it's existed throughout throughout time quite frankly um, but it's a it's an urgent question in many ways. One of them is very practical. The FBI is, even though it is an incredibly outstanding organization, it continues to have more difficulty than ever recruiting minorities sure. into its ranks, and and understandably so. But one of the things I tell uh, minority communities, young people who come to me and talk about careers, 
is don't forget this the 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 primary civil rights enforcement arm of the United States government is the FBI who's who's really investigating Derek Chauvin and the murder of George Floyd who's really behind the scenes waiting for for the local police to do the right thing or the wrong thing in many of the civil rights and excessive use of force cases in police departments it's the FBI every squad every field office in the bureau has a squad that dedicates itself to civil rights both color of law on the law enforcement side and hate crimes so in my in my career my first, I was a Connecticut Yankee mm-hmm. they sent me to Atlanta what 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 do I end up working initially I'm I'm in clan rallies I'm working the clan cross burnings right and, and who and who still does that it's the FBI so I get really pained when I when I, I, I see minority young people going, I'm not choosing a career in that kind of public service. I, I just I don't want to do it. I said, well, then then you're leaving it to the white guys to do it. Is that is that what you want to that, do? That, man, you as a three, three of my mm-hmm. fraternity brothers are FBI members and they 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 were they were uh, recruited at uh, Alcorn and then two other college, historically black colleges. Uh, and, and they have great careers. And, th- th- you know, even uh, 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 Senator Booker talked about the day. I-, I know you have to go, but I just wanted to ask you one other question. You spoke to the fact that the FBI is really the enforcement arm of the civil rights you know, apparatus. And even, in, I think, in 2007, um, and I think uh, later on in 2016 or 17, the FBI came out with reports uh, that said that law enforcement virtually across the country has been uh, inundated and infiltrated with white supremacists. We know that they exist, right? We know that they exist. Why has there not been a concerted effort um, uh, at the behest of the FBI to root, root those people out as opposed to just identify? Like if you, if you knew you had cancer, you wouldn't just go, hey, okay, you got cancer, now let's leave it alone. But that seems to have been the tact that they've taken. They've identified it. But they have no 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 protocol, no no idea of how to deal with it. So just knowing you have something and knowing that something uh, you know is is a problem exacerbates the problem because it seems like you know it but are unwilling to do anything about it. Yeah, um, I I agree. And so part of the FBI's job is to not only point things out, trends, patterns, intelligence, but also to try and do something about it with local police partners. And I think, and I hope that the impetus after. After January 6th, will be a massive look at the pipeline from the military, who's already acknowledged, yes. right? They're doing a stand down right now on uh, on this issue, and the pipeline. You know, veterans' preference is a great thing that we we give a leg up to our military veterans in public service and government jobs. But guess what? The the pipeline comes from the military to the police departments, and if and if they're if you're, you know. If you if you're hiring a problem out of the military, and you're not doing anything about it, and you're putting them on the streets um, after combat training. That that's a that's an issue that has to be dealt with. So what I'd love to see, and I think Merrick Garland, the new Attorney General, is gonna is gonna deal with this head on. We need a whole new way of thinking about how we recruit police officers. A whole new I way. I could not I mean, agree more. I'm not talking about oh we need a deeper background. No, look, we we need civilians on interview panels. We need you. Mm-hmm. We need to ask you the question: How how many friends do you actually have in the minority community? Like, were they part of your wedding party? Have you ever had re- interracial roommates? Are they buddies? Are they over your house? And guess what? The latest thinking right now in polygraph exams is that you can actually do a single issue polygraph exam to determine if someone is biased or prejudiced in a violent way. That's where we're going in recruiting 
police officers. And but it's what about statistics? Hold. You're absolutely right, and I think I think we've all talked. But statistically, we never know. We always know how many police officers are shot and what, reg- what frequency they get shot with. We do. We know that. We know that one, uh, according to the Senate today, one every week is shot, unfortunately, in the line of duty. We don't know how many police officers shoot. We don't. So I think that the, there's a deliberate, to me, there is this notion that that we only want to know one side of this very nuanced picture and and it's only a punitive side as opposed to how do we make us a better situation when we don't know how much force is used, yep. when they use it, how, how, what frequency they use it in, how many people. Like we, we don't know. We refuse to, 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 to correlate this information and start making changes. Yeah, m- metrics matter. Until you start measuring something, you can never really get your hands around the issue. We do know this. Harvard, Harvard did a study a, a year ago that said that black, no, no surprise to anyone, that blacks in America have somewhere between a three and six percent greater chance of being shot by the police under the same circumstances as a white person. So, and, and it's probably higher than that. The FBI collects this kind of data on, sh- on police shootings, but it's garbage in and garbage out. If the police departments aren't re- reporting it, it's not available. And if it's not studied, we aren't transparent. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. See. I think yeah. that to, to me, why isn't a person like you, um, to me, to work with a lot of groups, you would be the perfect person to work with various groups. Uh, I'm talking about groups of color, um, to kind of be a conduit between law enforcement organizations and the efficacy of, 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 of policing communities of color. It, it seems like that should be a special thing that we do because if we're, if we're evolving, when you talked about this metrics matter, um, it, why do we have information for information's sake? If it isn't to 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 kind of ratchet up our effectiveness, why do we want um, why do we want things to just status quo? We we can't keep coming out with the same report eight to ten or seven years later and not doing it. Why would why isn't a person like you uh, on a on, a, a czar? Like if you if, if you if, if if it was about us selling drugs, they 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 take somebody like you and make you the czar of of drug, but they won't make you the czar of, of police uh, and community relations. They won't do something we, like that. Yeah, we. so uh, I think you're very kind. I'm dipping my toe in that water. I'm writing and speaking to groups about this, including uh, a number of minority organizations. But I, I think you're onto something with the issue of appointing someone with an, and, and giving them an office and resources, likely within DOJ under the new AG, Merrick Garland, that is overseeing a reimagining of the police and that would be involved the collection of far more meaningful data and then doing something about the whole issue of recruitment, um, maintaining and auditing police departments. Do you know under Bill Barr and Trump, they stopped doing what's I called do know that. practices <laughs> I do know that. I actually so do you, know that. You could have a police department that was just shooting black people at will and they stopped investigating the patterns and practices of the police. Sure. That's going to start up again as will the community, community relations department at the, at the DOJ that comes in and prevents crises before they happen, right? Some, some city's getting really hot, maybe over a shooting. They, they had a team that was great at coming in and calming everybody down and getting to the facts. They didn't do that for the last four because years. Because their so, business was chaos. Yeah. Chaos was their I'm, I'm not. I'm not even trying to be kind. I've, I've watched uh, and read any number of things. And I think that... Um, it is your continuum of experiences 
um, and and a level of humanity that I see exhibited. I think that you could be uh, all dot all the I's and, and cross all the T's. That's one thing, because because in this situation you would have to have your feet in both worlds. So I, I'm not making that. It's not ad hoc. I'm just kind of saying this thing. I think yeah. that. There needs to be, and, and much like what happens with any director of the FBI, they need to be uh, apolitical. They need to be just, and, and I think just hearing somebody who, who has such a, you know, such a tenured career in law enforcement to admit and say and do so, it's going, and if that were consistently represented in, 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 in ideas of how to move forward, how do we, how, because we're going to be here. <laughs> like, these things are going to happen. Um and how to how to forge a way forward that is constructive and that is forward progressive. Uh, you may hate the word. A lot of people may hate the word. But moving forward and and forging this idea of what can be as opposed to what has been or what is is something I think you'd be invaluable. At. I do. Yeah, I, I'm 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 in. I'm in. I'm already consulting with police departments on on getting much better at what they do, recruiting, uh, taking a different posture on how they respond and quite frankly, giving up a lot of their duties, DL. When when you talk to cops on the street, they go, yeah, here's what I did today. Um, I had to deal with five truants who were skipping school. I, um, <laughs> right, you know, right, right, I, right. I had a domestic between a grandma <laughs> and a kid. Uh, you know, they, they don't need this on their plate. And, and we can give all of that to other services and then focus on training officers Answer the emergency 911 call in a way that protects everybody. Yep. Hey, man, the, the book is uh, The FBR Way, uh, Freak, Freak, Freak Lucy. I hope that your, uh, when after that is a, a huge uh, uh, bestseller, and I know it will be. I hope your your yeah. new book, uh, The New FBI Way. Reimagining the FBI. There you go, man. Freak, right. Freak Lucy, thank you for joining us on the program, man. Good luck to you. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Yasmin. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome back to DL Uncut. Our next guest is an Emmy-nominated creative director, choreographer, and author. Her debut book, Dance Your Dance, Eight Steps to Unleash Your Passion and Live Your Dream, is available where books are sold. It's Lorianne Gibson. It's Boomcat! <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Nice hey, to... Hey, beautiful. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, see? She, she, she already dusting her shoulders off. We have, we have a lot in common. Uh, we both are authors, right? And uh, we're both world-renowned dancers. You remember my turn on uh, dan- uh, Girl, Dance with the Stars. Girl, speak your truth. You remember my the Boogie Fantastic. You remember the the lowest scores in the history of the dance show. <laughs> Do you know what? I, I was thinking about when I came on here, and I was thinking, they just didn't know how to judge you. You yeah. see, great. You can't. <laughs> you are so wonderful already. <laughs> no, but she would have taught you how to bring the passion out. No. I, I know what she would have. She would have coached you beautifully. She but would have taught I, you how to bring that inner out. But the problem is, I don't give a shit about dancing. Oh, and then I don't care about it. <laughs> they were like, "Use your hips, use your hips." Last time I used my hips, my wife got pregnant three times, and that's <laughs> the, they. I did the child support better than anybody. Black people how to use their hips. Yeah, right, right. So you you work with. You work with Lady Gaga. You work with Michael Jackson. You work with Diddy. You work with Nicki Minaj. Um, out of all of them, Michael Jackson is probably the most renowned, world-renowned dancer, right? 
one uh, listen a hundred percent the greatest entertainer of all time i mean and obviously there are some others for me like bob marley but in his space undeniable incredible talent yes, so, 100%. so you had a lot to work with with somebody like michael jackson right it was a, a lot of a, a wellspring of talent to draw from right well, yes, absolutely. And I was very young, so it was Spike Lee directed, Michael Jackson artist, video, they don't really care about us. Right. So I believe it was like, a, you know, an accumulation of amazing, magical things on that particular job. If you can make Diddy look like he can dance, I know you can make me look like I can dance. I know that. I know that. <laughs> I know I can do that. So who is the, who is the, who has been your most challenging um, person to work with, your most challenging client? I think they're all challenging <laughs> for different reasons. Listen. But I'm talking about from a I lack of, <laughs> lack of, I'm talking about like my reason, a lack of dancing acumen. That that reason. Like who? Listen, I'm telling you, everybody has their own challenges. That's why I tell you, dance your dance and no one else's because you have no business dancing somebody else's dance. Yeah. But we all have uh, one or two rhythms that we're fighting to find. Absolutely. So I but I think that's what it, we we all dance to our own beat, or we move to our own beat, we make decisions to our own beat. So it makes sense that you would dance to your own beat, the way he does. Yeah, <laughs> he got I'm a not, whole different rhythm I'm not going. embarrassed because I'm I'm dope, and the beat that's in my head, no one's played yet. Mm -hmm. So yeah. mm -mm. It's, I, I dance to the banjo from Deliverance. That's my thing. <laughs> what? <laughs> not the banjo from Deliverance. <laughs> I feel like you know you have a dance, and you're just. Fighting to have me pull it out. Uh, yes, indeed. Once yes, indeed. I'm going to get that eight count out of oh, you. For sure. <laughs> I think that would be dope. I will chair dance the shit out of competition. <laughs> <laughs> you get to sit in a chair. I feel like you're apologizing for the fact that you know there is greatness in you. You know, See, you, I told you she'd you know be able so to do well. it. I you told know me you. so well. <laughs> you know me so well. It's interesting because I'm a comedian, you're a dancer. And, and those are not, like if you told your parents when you were growing up that that would be a path to seeing the world and working with world-renowned artists, they might have been reticent because that's, that's not a clearly definable or quantifiable thing. At least they didn't used to teach dance early on, but now I, I guess it's a lot more popular. It's much like what I do. But what was it in you that you knew that this was kind of going to be what you what, what you did for the rest of your life to a greater or lesser degree. I think like you said, what's in you, and I think an uh, indication of that, like I talk about in the book, is the passion, you know? Like comedy. It's the passion for that feeling that you get when you give that punchline, when, you, when you're when you becoming the joke, when you even fucking find the joke. Right. It's magical. You know, it's that passion, it's that feeling that tells you that's who you are in your most fulfilled self. It's right. the same thing for me, I know I was gifted with dance before I even came here because I told my mother very young that I wanted to dance. So uh, when I did it, it created a feeling in me that was an undeniable feeling versus me trying to go to school to become a doctor or a lawyer. Those things didn't identify or didn't create a passion, a fire that burned in me. It's interesting when you, when you, when you say things like that, now it's, it's, you, you you obviously to do it you have to have a lot of passion, but to teach it and to get people to because some of the people that you have worked with I'm I'm assuming didn't have quite the passion of dancing that you did right but you still had to so what was it in you that allowed you to kind of transmit your passion to them to to to, to give them something a, a through line to go with? Well, the dance is one part of building a superstar or an artist, so. The thing about being is everybody has a rhythm to who they are. 
And so even before we create the movement, when I listen to a record, I understand where that person breathes, how they sing. I see the music. So I create the dance out of what they can do. And sometimes the limitation in someone is actually the most powerful thing about them. Wow. Because the four steps that you find, you teach them how to do it to the best of their ability. What about the one step? Can you find (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I know that there are people that I, uh, you know, comedically, that that when I got a chance to meet them or even work with them, it was like, it was transcendent. It was awe-inspiring. Who are some of those artists for you? Well, I, I, I mean, again, it's hard for me with the generation, obviously, that I was a part of, uh, and then obviously the new artists that I work with. But I would have to say it was, you know, Michael Jackson, Tina Turner. Um, you know, there are people that turn it on, and it's super magical. Fantasia is one of them. Uh-huh. Obviously, Beyonce is one of them. But again, um, it's in the artists that I've built, and what I'm excited about is this new generation that has an innate appetite to bring back the performance quality, the magic of making music, the magic of creating an experience. So I'm excited about the future. So when you talk about building uh, basically a persona, it has to be, yeah. if you're building a star, so you start, obviously you, when you want to build anything, it starts with a strong foundation. And for you, that foundation is what? It depends. You know, Most of it is in the music or in the message. And it comes different in different packages. That's why I talk about dancing your dance. So it's different packages. Some artists are led by the actual music. They love making music. They love the effects that it has on people. What's the purpose behind it? Very rarely do I engage in overnight, you know, uh, manufactured artists or things without intention. I learned early that I don't really align myself with that type of artist it's too specific yeah what do you think the hardest part is because i would imagine you know the old saying of dance like no one's watching really means to be liberated not worry about what other people think about the way you're moving or if it's on beat or not you know so what do you think is the hardest or not no i was just you know putting it out there for anybody who wanted to you know no 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 you just dance your own beat it's cool but what do you think is the hardest thing when you're dealing with you know an artist or even an up up and coming dancer i think it's it's two things one is that the hardest part is the time where no one believes but you and the artist. So it's sustaining the process in order to get to the evidence of that, in order to get to the greatness. That's the hardest part because I have to carry it. And so I have to have the ability to sustain it while everyone doesn't believe. And then, you know, for example, Gaga actually didn't hear rhythm. She heard one and three and nine. So I forced myself to create movement offbeat, which is mm. why everyone has their own rhythm but um the hardest part is sustaining it while there's no evidence of the effects of it you know uh they say that the greatest teachers are the greatest listeners uh and that's exhibited by what you just said uh you you talked about being able to see the music and being able like to me the two of the the people at least male singers that i have that i think are transcendent are marvin Gaye and then luther vandross and yeah. and they could dance in a phone booth, <laughs> like they could dance in a phone booth, but their music is so timeless. Um, you could put on Marvin Gaye at any point in our history, and it would resemble what's going on right now. Um, is that when you say being able to see, like I, that's not my skill set, but as a, as a consumer or as a lover of of, of art of, of of music, 
those are things that that are visible to me. Is that is that kind of like for that's really indelible and really easy to see. But you see that in in virtually everybody you work with to some to a greater or lesser degree, right? Yeah, if they have it, they are being it. Someone like Marvin Gaye, obviously, all things were aligned. He was really being everything about him and the music and the message. There was no, there wasn't a space where you couldn't find him being exactly what he was when he opened his mouth. And I actually worked with Luther Vandross, and, and like you said, there wasn't a moment where when he opened his mouth, he didn't surrender to how that made people feel. You know, today's artists don't understand how to be vulnerable, sing the lyrics, be the lyrics, feel the lyrics, so that when you buy a ticket to the experience, you can actually feel that version yourself. I mean, when Marvin Gaye opens his mouth, we all connect to it because he's so deeply rooted in his ability to be the gift. And that's why not everybody is truly a superstar because it's it's not about celebrity. Everybody thinks celebrity means you're talented. Right. No, no, I know it doesn't. <laughs> Again, let's stay off me. Let's stay with them. No, you have a, a very broad continuum of experiences. Like you talked about uh, Michael Jackson and, and Luther Vandross and Marvin Gaye, but now um, you have to you have to kind of uh, swing the pendulum to this group of artists, uh, and 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 they don't they haven't in, in, to some degrees the genre doesn't connect to the music the way the other artists did. So how do you how do you keep that them viable? How do you keep that connection? How do you get them to where they want to go, even though they, they may not have some of the things that you think are viable in the inventory? I think I, I take a different roadmap for everyone, but I'll tell you, this generation has been uh, the most difficult to see the evidence of greatness. Because <laughs> y'all ain't now, shit. That's how, you deliver, that's how you deliver news. You ain't shit. I like it. Listen, yeah, ringtone. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I mean, and the, and then I choose very wisely. Like the last artist, obviously, that I took to number one was Nicki Minaj, and before I left. But again, to see versions of her so immediately, it's like it's just ridiculous. But again, you you've got to get into educating these artists. You know, uh, they have the appetite for fame, for celebrity. Real artists have the appetite to deliver their music, deliver mm-hmm. the lifestyle, deliver what's inside of them, which will be attached to the message. Yeah. Well, I, I think a lot of it is that they also want to express and be creative and, and allow people to see whatever it is that they're feeling, right? Whereas I think today's dancers and even the music to some extent is really done for TikTok so that you can create a dance that people will do for, you know, I don't know, to go viral for about a week or two and then you're on to the next dance. So it's really not even about emoting any kind of expression or anything as much as it is. How many likes can I get? How many people can I get to do the same dance? Right. It's not really dance at all. It's an exercise in entertainment. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's a game show. So game and show. it is what it is, but it's also about, you know, really creating a narrative that says, you know, a dancer on TikTok does not mean they're a choreographer or a real right. art right. dance, right? You have to sustain an emotion for a long period of time in the atmosphere and create a feeling with people watching you. That's a real dance. But that says a lot. You know, most... (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That's the one. (laughs) Most people have never had genuine vanilla. Most people, most human beings have never had genuine vanilla. You can't tell them they have it, but it's such an expensive... It's so expensive. Most people 
have never had vanilla. They've had extract. They had imitation. They've never had real vanilla. So they don't right. know the difference. Right. But you can't tell them they don't love vanilla ice cream. And so right. that that's that. But that's more about the market. You, you talked about dancing. We did dances. People watched them. Like I remember going to parties. Yes. And I danced. And the whole room would be doing the dance. Like the whole room. Now they watch them. So you you have uh, in this in this short conversation you've talked about writing you've talked about building people you've helped, uh, talked about people finding uh, their, their their rhythm and connecting to the music and th- these are these are these are really heady things. What are you? What would you say you are? Like if, if I were asking you, what the fuck are you? Like you you like are you are you a cipher? Are you a muse? Are you what are you? Well, I I'm a prototype. I'm one of one. But I'm a visionary. I'm a creative visionary. I don't see what's there. I see what's not there. Yeah? In order to create an option. So like you said, the narrative is the way it is now. But I have new artists that I have coming that will shift the narrative based on the way I have implemented my methodology to a a new 18-year-old pop star that I'm building. We will get back there. It's about creating the option instead of just saying, you're not doing it right, you're not doing it right. What I tend to do is create what's right about the option. So now you actually don't know what vanilla tastes like, but now you've had the opportunity to really experience real vanilla, and now you know that the other one was manufactured. You, you know, there are things that happen. Uh, there, there, there have been three times in history where there was an whether it be an earthquake or some other event that was so powerful it made a river run backwards, like backwards, like that. It was against physics, and I think what you're what you're talking about. Is getting people to to be a, a, a kind of a, a natural phenomenon, getting get, to 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 take people back to their way. At least they have the potential to do that. Um, yeah. Who who, uh, who do you think right now, whether we know them or not, that you feel like I'm, I'm, I'm a bad motherfucker now? I can't oh, dance. Yeah. 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 That's right. <laughs> tell them. Tell I people. Do, I could tell do a quaking myself, but um, who who is that artist now that you feel that has the bare bones to be what it is? You know, because you're talking about connective tissue from what was to what what isn't even here yet. So who is that artist? I think it sustained the conversation. I think we will begin to see that. I don't know if we saw saw it, but I feel like in rap, obviously, there's a Pop Smoke who got taken early. Right. There's a Nick Hustle who right. showed it and perhaps had to leave because they couldn't sustain it uh, while we were recreating the narrative. Um, you know, I just have to look at, like, J, B, Nas, I still marry, you know what I mean? You still got to reach into the balance. And right now, age doesn't matter. Uh, stats don't matter. The moment matters and what you do with it. So I think those that have the greatness in them, it's more important for them to not be defined by age, timing, platform, anything. Now is the time for them to unleash and show evidence of greatness so that we can connect uh, the dots really quickly, and I think the most powerful artists are yet to come out I'm, this year. As out. as one natural phenomenon to another, I dig what you're saying. That's one. Like, dig what I'm saying. It's, people, they don't, you know, look, you be the tsunami, I'll be the earthquake. You dig? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. I'm looking forward to talking and, and seeing you more. I'm sure it's going to be a it's going to be a lot. I'm interested. To, just just hearing you, it'd be interesting to see who you put your stamp on next. Yes, sir. All Thank right. You.
keep watch because it will be huge. Well, I, I'm gonna watch anyway. The other part is just extra. All right. I got <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Thank on the you program. so much. Thank <laughs> you. Take care.